Dr. Wayne Frederick was appointed president of Howard University in 2014, before which he had served as provost and chief academic officer of the university. He is also the chair of its surgery department. Today, he will discuss the role Howard is playing in the racial climate in America and in higher education more broadly. Let's listen in. Uh, I'm pleased to introduce our guest today, uh, Howard University President uh, Dr. Wayne A.I. Frederick. Uh, He has been the 17th president of Howard uh, since 2014. Before that, he served as provost and chief academic officer. Also, more recently, he has been selected by the board to serve as the distinguished Charles R. Drew Endowed Chair of Surgery. And uh, he has overseen many reform efforts, including the expansion of academic offerings and establishing innovative programs. We're sure that all will be interested to hear how Howard is handling the changing landscape uh, in education and in our country. And, uh, you know, uh, Obviously, recent events have uh, increased the uh, prominence and the dependence and the interest in the historically black colleges and universities of which Howard is, I would say, the leader. And uh, uh, we're very glad he'll lead off with some opening remarks and then we'll open up for active questions. Sure, so thanks again uh, for having me and and thanks for the the kind introduction, uh, Mr. Max. It turns out that we do have uh, one um, relationship in common that I, I have to acknowledge, and that's um, Bruce Kosh, um, who uh, I've had the opportunity to meet and, and get to know very well, and actually has um, been a very generous supporter of a STEM program that I'll, I'll mention here. So a- as you heard, I'm the 17th president of uh, Howard University. Uh, um, my board chair, Larry Moss, is also on the call, so I want to acknowledge him as well. So he sees that I'm at work doing what I told him I was going to be doing <laughs> as well. And uh, he's, he's been a fantastic uh, board chair to partner with. Uh, Howard University is a historically black college and university. And so the first thing, and I know that the people I'm speaking to here, are, you know, very, uh, you, you all are very um, prominent uh, stalwarts in our society. And so I, I, some of what I may say may be redundant to you, but I, I uh, want to make sure just for clarification that we are on the same page as we get into questions. Uh, it's a historically black college and university, which actually is a federal designation that was part of the High Tech Act uh, back in the 1960s, an amendment to it, I should say. And so uh, we, you don't get to call yourself a historically black college and university. It's actually a federal designation. And it relates to institutions that were founded at a time uh, to really educate African-Americans um, in this country. So how it was founded um, back on March 2nd, 1867, uh, to serve the purpose of educating freed slaves moving from the South. It actually was predated by a hospital uh, by the name of Freedman's Hospital. And uh, the 17th president of the United States uh, signed Howard's uh, charter. So it's also the only federally chartered HBCU, and, and that gives us another uniqueness. Uh, what's interesting about that is that he also vetoed the first Reconstruction Act. So his uh, signing of the charter for Howard wasn't because he was uh, particularly, uh, you know, kind to the advancement of African Americans, um, but he probably, to be quite honest, thought it would be a field experiment. So he's probably somewhere turning over in his grave. Uh, thinking that he probably vetoed the wrong act that day that he should have signed. Uh, having said that, 
how it has grown and changed in many ways since then. I'm the 17th president. Uh, one little known fact, even by my alum, is that I'm only the seventh uh, black president of the university. Uh, the first 10 presidents uh, were white men. And so we're due for the 18th president to be a woman. 70% of my undergrads are women. Um, many of my alum, um, you have either heard about or they have impacted uh, your world in some way, shape or form. And they range from Thurgood Marshall, uh, Senator Edward Brooke, um, obviously Senator Harris, uh, Chadwick Boseman, uh, and Vernon Jordan, to name a few, uh, Elijah Cummings as well. And so one of the things that we continue to do today in a contemporary experience is to try to afford um, students an opportunity who wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity. We're a private institution, but we attract 46% Pell Grant students. We also maintain a tuition that I would say is about 40% on average less than our peer institutions. So that puts us in a, in a bit of a conundrum around how do you finance what is one of the biggest complaints in our current uh, society of, of how expensive education has gotten. How do you do that at a high quality for low-income students who can't necessarily bring in revenue? And so we've, we've looked at diversifying our revenue streams in order to do that more effectively. Obviously, fundraising is one component of that, but we've looked at mobilizing non-core real estate assets and pouring those back into the institution. And we've done one thing that I think this group in particular would be interested in, which is to attempt to, to take a different look at education and student debt. Most people focus it on what the federal government looks at, which is a six-year graduation rate. Um, I'm the beneficiary of a Howard education three times over. I have, I'm a triple alumnus. But the manner in which I got my bachelor's degree in MD kind of forms my viewpoint in terms of uh, our educational expense. So I did a two, two years undergrad and four years med school. Howard had a combined BSMD program and has had it for many, many years. That obviously um, took away uh, two years worth of uh, student debt and expenses from me. And I thought it was a very unique opportunity that I didn't quite appreciate as much back then, but as university president, I certainly do. So when I came into the presidency, I decided that uh, we would try to do a few things around that concept. Let's not look at a six-year graduation rate, let's focus on a four-year graduation rate. And I would even make the argument that I think uh, our university experience in America is really a three-year program, another four-year program. I try to tell students and parents, don't drop kids off to our campus to find themselves. This is an expensive way to find yourself. Uh, you should probably go backpacking in Europe if you want to find yourself. But when you come here, you should, we should try to focus you on what you're going to do. 80% of your time, you're going to spend outside of the classroom. So the, the socialization we want students to get, you're going to get. I don't think you need to, to come to college or university to do that. That's going to happen as part of the technical knowledge you'll get in the classroom for that 20%. So how do we make that uh, give it the, the best opportunity? And so we've done a few things that I think you'd be interested in, and they also have implications around the current pandemic. So one is we stood up an office of undergraduate studies, and we really focused students on taking a minimum of 15 credits when they start. The first thing I discovered was that too many of our students were taking less than 15 credits a semester. Uh, so even if you took 12 credits a semester, we, you, you need 120 to graduate. So even if you got a 4.2 every semester, 12 credits uh, uh, um, semester, you would end up uh, in four years with a 4.0 GPA 
and you would have accumulated over that period of time about 96 credits and you wouldn't have graduated. And you would still have uh, at least two more semesters at that rate to do. So we really focus students on trying to stay on track until we got software to make sure they did that, et cetera. Uh, the second thing we did is to make sure the students were being advised well. And I'm an example of somebody who would have needed that advice. I'm very, I was very interested in business, interested in STEM, I wanted to become a physician. I have sickle cell anemia. I wanted to do research in that area. So I was the classic example of being all over the place. And uh, what, when I also looked at students who weren't graduating on time, I was shocked to see that they were attempting on average north of 135 credits. So they were here long enough to have attained their degree had they been focused on a particular um, you know, on, on the particular credits that they needed. Now, that also brings up an issue as to what really is and should be our general education requirements. And should we be such sticklers to that, that we really make students stay here longer than they should. And I would say we need to increase our flexibility in our education system to do that. And then the last thing was, how can we remove the financial barriers? So again, because I felt it potentially was a three-year program, I went to the board and I suggested rather than make the maximum credits you could take at 18 a semester, why don't we take it at 21? So if you took 20 a semester, you'd graduate in three years. And sure enough, we went from a 1%, less than 1% three-year graduation rate to this year, we are at 3 point something percent three-year graduation rate on our way, hopefully to 10% three-year graduation rate. Why is that important? Just think of what happens if we get 10% of our low-income students to graduate in three years versus six. Just think of the cost um, embedded in that three-year period and what that could save um, the entire society as a whole. And if we kept doing that over time, the impact. Yes, it's not for everyone, I would agree. And, and that obviously is a, is a clear and obvious criticism, but there are highly motivated students um, who could do that and who would appreciate that time. We also give a 50% tuition rebate for the students who finish on time or early of any direct payments you make in your last semester. So the example for that is if you owe us $10,000 in your last semester for tuition, rather than take out a $10,000 loan, we make an argument to students, why don't you take out a $5,000 loan, you know, work hard with your family to pay it $5,000 direct, and then at the end of the semester, you get back 2,500, which you can actually take to pay um, half of the loan back until you really end up with $2,500 worth of debt instead of 10,000. Again, trying to give the students an opportunity and, and practical things that they could use to also get a head start when they finish and not necessarily be drowning in debt um, as a result. So the pandemic has disproportionately affected African-Americans and a large part of my student population, as you would imagine, are African-Americans as well. So during this period of time, um, we've stood up testing sites in Ward 7 and 8 here in DC. That area is 95% African-American. Disproportionate number of deaths in this city have come from that ward. At the same time, the life expectancy in that ward for an African-American male is about 66 years. If you live in Ward 3, that's 95% white, the life expectancy there is almost 20 years more, right here in the, the small city in the nation's capital. So that healthcare disparity uh, is grave. And, and we feel that as part of the community, we needed to participate in it. We also recognize the African-American unemployment rate 
um, which is quoted at 13%. And, and for the sake of full disclosure, I am on the Federal Reserve Board of the Fifth District in Richmond. Um, the reality is that is probably even higher than that if you could really count uh, the unemployment rate in, in a different manner. So we have given students hard grants, some hardship grants, uh, recognizing that they are not gonna, that their families would be affected by the recession disproportionately. And so we've given uh, $1,250 uh, $1, to students whose expected family contribution is zero and about $500 to those whose expected family contribution um, is above qualifying for a Pell Grant, but um, below the cost of attendance. And so as, as I wrap up, I, I wanna end on the note of Pell Grants and some of you are, are former legislators. Uh, there's, there are billions of dollars of unspent Pell every year. And I think that that is an opportunity for our country. I think if we created a program out of the unspent Pell, and I recognize that the unspent Pell is not always there in a positive way every cycle, but if we did put aside a certain percentage of the unspent Pell grant every year and created a fund that would that could be used for institutional building, institutional infrastructure around the types of things that would allow low-income students to succeed, advising um, facilities, because a lot of these institutions don't have it, we could actually also fortify and encourage um, uh, higher ed institutions to bring on more Pell Grant qualified uh, students, and you could put that into a fund that could be distributed based on percentage of Pell Grant students uh, you take in, at, or you could even do it based on the proportion of expected family contribution students at a zero that one may take in. And I think things like that, I, I know there's a discussion in the country around uh, no tuition or, or free college, but I think that that conversation could be broadened into what can we do with the resources we currently have? And since there's already a bill that allows for Pell Grants, if we just are more creative about how we try to use those dollars and deploy them, uh, we can actually create a system that potentially uh, could actually encourage uh, our attainment in college. Um, around the issue of the pandemic as well, uh, we started off with 9,400 students last fall. Um, there's been a lot of doom and gloom about where higher ed is, is heading and that um, online would take over. And as I sit here to you, our uh, student enrollment is 10,972. It actually has gone up 17%. I would argue because of students not having an alternative. So rather than backpacking in Europe for the year, they've decided I'm going to be at home anyway. I may as, may as well enroll. The grants that we've given to, re, to relieve the financial burden made it more attractive. Their cost is down because they're, they're at home and not on our campus. I think all of those have been factors in terms of increasing the enrollment. But what I will tell you, um, especially for low-income students, they want to be back on campus and they need to be because the one thing we give them that is difficult to replicate in a virtual environment is confidence. And that instilling of confidence doesn't necessarily only come from our faculty, but it comes from that socialization. It comes from the ability for, for them to come from a wide variety of backgrounds and to sit in the cafeteria with the same person, to listen to the same music, to have a conversation about the politics of the day and to that type of finding yourself, as it were, is something that I think Howard does in a unique way. But many institutions that bring low-income students into an environment where they can get that confidence uh, certainly do provide. So I'll, I'll stop here and 
take any questions. We we have a hospital on our campus as well. Uh, I'm a I should I should have mentioned I'm a practicing surgeon um, as well. So I'm happy to answer any questions as well about you know healthcare and the disproportionate impact you know the COVID has had on certain communities as well. I'd like to start off by asking what your greatest challenges are, and yeah. have they been exacerbated by the uh, by the uh, uh, COVID? Yeah, great question. Um, we have a small hospital, um, too small at a university medical center to stand alone, to be quite honest. And if you've looked at M and A activity in the hospital business over the course of the past decade, um, it has been to consolidate and to create economies of scale that makes sense. Uh, so we have been on a process to do that. Uh, the, the, the pandemic um, would have uh, totally, I would say, it potentially had the, the opportunity to sink the university had we um, not uh, started that movement to move to a, a, a bigger system. So when I took over we, that year, we lost $60 million as a hospital entity, low volume, um, difficult to, to, you know, really make a margin. If you think about it, um, if my surgeons in orthopedics, um, do, you know, 50 knee replacements a year and I buy 52 knee, you know, devices and three of them don't work, uh, there's no margin in that business. As opposed to if I'm part of a bigger system that buys a thousand a year and I use 52, uh, you know, even if three don't work, it's a much different um, economy and you apply that across almost everything that we do and, and you immediately begin to see a very different product. So we have a partnership with Adventist Healthcare. They're managing the university hospital. The past four years, we've had a positive bottom line and that really saved us. But shutting down all the elective activity at the hospital, uh, as I said, I'm a cancer surgeon. I had uh, I don't operate as often as, as I used to, but I had at least half a dozen patients who were getting their chemo and radiation finished. And instead of getting the operations within four to six weeks after, I had to wait eight to 10 weeks later, just because of COVID in order to do the operations. You apply that across the entire system and it was, it was devastating. We're back to about 80% of our activity. The CARES Act helped, but I think that challenge is still a challenge. And I also would say we're going to have a larger challenge going forward because 80% 85, 88% of our patients either have Medicare or Medicaid, and a lot of them have chronic illnesses. So the other thing that I'm very worried about is if you look at mortality data between the months of March and June of 2019 and the months of March and June of 2020, we have had a significant rise in terms of people dying at home. That could be a mixture of COVID-related deaths, it could be a mixture of people with chronic illnesses not getting to the hospital quickly enough because they were concerned or just not managing their chronic illnesses, everything from hypertension to diabetes, et cetera. And I think even as we open up and begin to come out, we're going to see chronic illnesses, especially again in uh, low-income um, parts of our country, really exacerbated. We're going to see people with you know, very badly um, uncontrolled diabetes and things like that. So, so we're going to have a different kind of healthcare crisis, I think, as, as we come out. So challenge number one, I would say, still is with healthcare. And challenge number two is figuring out a way to um, do what we do as God's work, as my faculty will tell you, but without God's time and God's money. I, I tell the faculty I don't have access to the latter two. 
And so we have to be creative about that. Diversifying the revenue is one thing, but the second thing that we have to do is to expand you know, philanthropic efforts is one, but we also have to be, I think, a little more creative about, you know, tuition, pricing, and so on. So at Howard now, instead of paying more, uh, we've actually given students the ability to get more credits, to take more credits. We have a summer program where you could do six credits for free if you, uh, you know, uh, pay us in full during the fall and the spring. So we put several things in place. And your natural question may be, has it affected the outcomes? Absolutely. Our four-year graduation rate is up 20% over the past five years, as an example. And, and again, for low-income students, that's, that's an economic escalator. But it's still a challenge every day to think of how to be creative around that issue and still you know, keep uh, the, the business, as it were, afloat and, and thriving. Very good. Uh, let's take the first question from Doug Scrivener. Uh, thank you, Howard, and uh, Dr. Frederick, thank you for sharing your time and your insights with us today. <clears throat> we hear, even before the pandemic, but certainly as a result of the pandemic, we hear a lot about disruption and the fundamental changes in the business model and higher education and and uh, and the like. And as a trustee of a, um, of a mid-sized uh, research private research university, we've thought about these questions a lot. I wonder, though, if you could talk about sort of distinction, the, the differences in the impacts between undergraduate and graduate and professional schools. Uh, yeah. I would argue that the impact of disruption of technology, issues of affordability uh, and, and the like are even more intense at the graduate and professional levels. And how do you think about addressing those issues, particularly at the graduate and professional school level? Yeah, I, you know, great question. I think great observation. I, and I, I agree with you. I mean, we have, um, how it is unique in that we have a law school, a dental school, a medical school, um, and a pharmacy school as well. And so when I look at, and obviously the graduate program, so when I look at that population, um, the country as a whole, so first I'll start nationally, uh, we've been in some trouble for some time in terms of what we've been doing there um, to, to make that business model work and also to make sure that we actually are producing um, young people getting in, graduating young people getting into the right fields to have an impact. So I'll, I'll use medicine as an example. Howard sends more African-Americans to medical school than any single institution in America. That's a, an outsized burden that surprises me at times every time I see that data. Um, in, in 1978, more African-American males applied to medical school than in 2015 as an example. So just think of how many opportunities educationally have been opened up and yet so that's a number. So when we look at outcomes for what those professionals then do when they graduate and we see a healthcare, a country with massive healthcare disparities, a lot of it has to do with cultural competency. Every black person in the country doesn't need a black physician, but they need a culturally competent physician. Right? And, and by that, I mean, I'll use my own example. When I graduated from medical school and finished my fellowship and came back to Howard, I operated on a 40-year-old African-American woman with a breast cancer. Um, several weeks later, six weeks to be exact, she needed to show up for her chemotherapy. She didn't show up on the first day. I called her and I called her, of course, as you could imagine, getting ready to spew uh, rhetoric around, you know, how important it was for her life, et cetera. And I called her, she listened to me quietly. 
And then she responded sheepishly and said, Dr. Frederick, I'm sorry, but I work by the hour. I have five kids and this was not a week that I could afford to not go to work. And I was devastated. I thought to myself, this is crazy. I'd never even fathom that somebody would make that type of a choice. So graduate and professional education is critical. It is hurting um, because that access is, is not uh, going to be there. And it's disproportionately, to your point, getting skewed in a way that we don't always understand. But I think there's some, there's some things and opportunities there that we need to look at. One of those is I think we need to start paying more attention to where our graduates and professional students are coming from in terms of going to those in, going to the institutions to get that, right? And, and I think if we look at that carefully and we then go back a, a step or two before that can help, and it can also help how we look at the business model. So I'll use Harvard's MBA program as an example. Over the past 50 years, the number one supplier of African-Americans to Harvard's MBA program was Harvard undergrad makes sense. The number two supplier was Howard University. So when employers tell me they're not sure where to go to find talent, I say to them, if you're interested in a Harvard MBA, then you must be interested in a Howard undergrad student, you know, in finance. And, and so if we go back a little bit and we start looking, how do we then get those streams? And then in terms of the business model, I think we have to do more with industry in order to close the gap. So we have a workforce development vision that we've been deploying. We started with Google. We sent Howard students out to Google and they were co-taught, they, they are, because some of them are there now in that program, they're co-taught by Google engineers and my faculty. And what that has done is it, it has effectively closed the gap in the complaints we get from employers about the readiness of students, their ability to code, their ability to do the work on day one versus what we think we're putting out. And you have to remember, my faculty are, are very, very good, but the reality is a lot of them have not been in the business outside of the educational environment for 20 years. And I think if we worked more with industry and close that gap, we could come up with a business model that turns the graduate and professional activity we have currently into more of the, the, the pipeline and stream. So you look at the vaccine work as an example, you've got graduate students in the STEM disciplines to be co to be employed as it were by drug companies at the same time that they're doing research at our universities and getting them in the, into the pipeline. I think we have a lot better opportunity to finance those types of things better. And, and what I mentioned in medicine is an issue in, in other fields, dentistry, Howard and Meharry um, account for 40% of the black dentists produced in this country every year. So we're running the risk, to your point, regardless of whether you look at the lack of diversity or you just look at producing talent and competing with the rest of the world. Um, we're running into trouble if we don't find a, a business model that works. And I, I think a business model that can work is marrying industry to some of our higher education institutions in creative ways um, as part of how to fund that activity. Thank you. Good, good. Let's turn to Maxine Clark. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Frederick. It's really nice to meet you, and I appreciate the information that you've shared with us. I wanted to talk, I, you, you did shed some light on the graduate program, um, which is really interesting because I didn't know all, I have friends that have graduated from Howard uh, and very proud of it. I don't know how active an alumni they are. I'm going to have to check on that for you. But <coughs> I was wondering about that with your alumni. How do you engage them so that they 
realize what they got and are giving back to you. I know that you've gotten some gigantic gifts recently uh, from some large donors, but I don't know how engaged your alumni are. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, when I started, um, my alumni giving rate for my undergrad alumni was 4% when I started. Um, as you said, you will not meet a Howard alum who will not boast and be their test about Howard University, but uh, they were a little bit sheepish about writing checks. And that comes from a couple of places. One is because we get a federal appropriation and we're one of two non-military institutions who get a federal appropriation with Gallaudet being the other as a result of our federal charter. That falsely has translated by our alum that we don't need alumni support. And to be quite honest, what we've been trying to do is to rely on the federal government support less and try to improve philanthropy. And that's the argument that I made coming in. But what I recognized, the bigger issue was lack of engagement. And most of my alum have that four-year period they were here firmly in place in their mind. And that's what they want to see every time that they show up. And uh, nobody was really asking them to give or engaging them on the contemporary experience of the university. So we went about changing that. I put out a newsletter every month called the Bison Beat. Bison is our name. And by the way, the reason we named the Bison is because our first iteration in Congress was through the Department of Interior. And obviously the logo for that is the Bison. And as you would imagine, Galudet is the same as well. So <laughs> a little bit of tidbit there on our history. So we started putting out a monthly newsletter um, called the Bison Beat to inform people what, of what was going on. Um, I actually have an alumni insight call that now is in a Zoom setting like this, um, in which I give a variety of updates. So I have a cabinet member give updates. Uh, we push out a, a newsletter every week called HU You Know uh, to highlight um, kind of what we're doing. And But I think probably the single most impactful thing that I've done is I give a stated university address during our homecoming week um, uh, every year. And so, uh, homecoming is usually in October, so in a couple of weeks I'm going to do that. And a big part of that is going to be kind of what the initiatives are, what we're doing. We have a strategic plan that we've been implementing and giving that. And so today our alumni giving rate is 12%. While it's still low, it's three times what it was uh, when we started. And so we're heading in the right direction, uh, I think, on that, on that um, note. Now, interestingly enough, the alumni giving rate across universities in America is actually, the average is actually about 8.9%. So we're actually above the average, but nowhere close to where we want to be in order to, to really be raising uh, some serious money from our alum. And then the last part of that I would say is our alum tend to do a lot of service. Our motto is truth and service. They tend to go into communities and really do that. Our medical alum, as an example, we were one of, three schools that were ranked for our social impact going into underserved areas. So a lot of times they're not necessarily making the same types of money that others would make in those fields. And the other thing that we're going to start doing this year is trying to count up service hours that our alum participate in, because I think that because we've gotten into a little bit of an arms race as higher education, we have lost the impetus around the social impact that people who get a higher education actually have. And if you really go back and you look at most people who have received a higher education in this country, they actually volunteer significantly. They do lots of things that 
we otherwise take for granted as a result of their education and their liberal arts foundation that they've gotten that have grounded them in the, necess the necessity for us to be uh, or to interact with each other in a certain way. And I think that that's a lost opportunity. I have one question about the alumni. Do you have like a regional, like there's lots of people in St. Louis. I'm, I'm from St. Louis. So is Bruce Karsh, by the way, originally from St. Louis. Yep. Um, the, uh, that there's a, a Howard Alumni Association in the Midwest. In yeah, I absolutely do. As a matter of fact, uh, since you're from St. Louis, you will also know that uh, probably unfortunately just about 10 days ago, we lost um, the former chair of our board, Raymond Smith. Um, who's from St. Louis. Uh, we have a pretty active chapter. Um, they're active enough that they've had me there at least twice uh, to visit with them. So they, they're pretty active. They, they raise money and, and give scholarships to kids from St. Louis as well. And so it's one of our impressive alumni groups. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, Dave Epstein? Dave? Uh, thank you. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I had a couple of questions. Um, one of them was uh, you talked about um, three years versus four years. I was wondering whether um, the success rate is similar or have you had enough experience in knowing that? And then the second question. When you say success rate, success rate in terms of? In graduation. So, so just to be clear, um, so when I say we, we have a three, we are tracking a three-year graduation rate, meaning that before we started increasing the number of credits you could get and going um, to school in summer for free, less than 1% of my population graduated in three years. Now 3% are graduating in three years and we hope to get that to 10%. So, so it, in other words, students are um, opting for that option. Um, we do have a, a full program set out by several of the majors that students can follow and graduate in three years. We are doubling down on it by opening up other avenues to graduate and professional education through that program. So we just started this fall uh, BAJD program, which consists of three years in undergrad, and then you go on to law school. Um, so we still need time to see what those students do as a mark of their success. But I think it's been successful because we've tripled our three-year graduation rate and uh, clearly more and more students are opting for that. And obviously, they, I should mention as well that all of the changes that we've made, student debt has actually gone down the last three consecutive years as well. Yeah, no, yeah, it was, uh, that, that's good news. I was wondering if, if by pushing for 21 credits, whether you're losing any students because of being overwhelmed of work and-, and Oh, that. yeah, that's a great question. No, the, the, the advising that also accompanies it, and, I, and I'm sorry, I'm obviously leaving that gap out. The advising that goes around this is fairly strenuous. So, so you can't just show up and say, I want to take 21 credits if you have a 2.0 and your last few semesters weren't, weren't healthy. <laughs> so we have criteria that you have to meet in order to be able to take on the higher workload. The only exceptions we make are for the students who are in their last year and may have you know, one or two classes extra, we may make an exception because it, it keeps them on track to get out in four years versus having them to stay back to do one or two classes. Excellent. Um, so, sorry to hog this, but I just I, a completely separate question. What, what do you think about uh, increasing diversity on campus? Um, I know male-female is quite, quite heavy on the male side of things and and uh, whether you're doing anything about 
increasing uh, even racial diversity on the campus. And, and, and as far as gender diversity or other types of diversity as well? Both. Okay, yeah. great. No, no, great, great question. So I actually argue that Howard is probably one of the most diverse institutions in America. We, we have students on our campus from 46 states and 71 countries. So we have a very, very diverse population. At our undergrad level, um, about 92% of the students are African-American. Um, and then in our graduate and professional, that drops uh, pretty precipitously to about 70%. And depending on which school or college you go to, it's, it's even more diverse. So we have a, a pretty diverse population around it. In terms of in, improving it, at the undergrad level, 70% of the, of the students are women. Uh, and the African-American male is a major concern. Only 30% of our undergrad students are males. A few years ago, before I started, we had a big push to improve that. And the Department of Justice showed up and expressed some concerns that we were creating an uneven um, competition by targeting African-American males. So we had to change kind of the literature and how we speak about that and how we, we set that up. But we do have a significant program to try to do that. One of the things that we've done is we've had a middle school um, on our campus for the past 15 years. Um, th those students come by lottery to us. About 95% of them go on to college. And uh, that's more evenly balanced. And a lot of those students, if you stop them you know, on my campus and ask them where they go to school, they'll tell you, I go to Howard University. And 60% of them end up doing STEM. It's a middle school focus on, STEM, on math and science. We call it MS squared um, for middle school and then math and science. And uh, that has been a good experiment to show that if we expose those students early, we have a pipeline. And so the other pipeline we've tapped into is the DC public school system uh, where we have dual enrollment programs as well to try to get students involved early. Uh, we don't charge them tuition. Uh, they come to us in their junior year. And then when we go out around the country, we really go out and try to speak to a wide variety of students. Like, for instance, the 100 men, uh, 100 black men in Chicago has a major college fear as an example. Um, and so we tap those around the country as well, uh, trying to get the pipeline. But there is a, there, I, I do have a concern. I, my 16, I have a 16-year-old um, son who's a junior and a 14-year-old uh, daughter who's a freshman in, in college. And I, and I think the way they, uh, and they are at private schools, and even there, the way folks interact with them, um, there's a lot of bias in the system, to be quite honest. My son plays soccer. Uh, there's some major universities looking at him. And every time we start a uh, parent-teacher meeting, um, there's a lot of discussion about his athletic prowess. And my wife and I have an agreement that I don't say much at the PTA meeting because I don't want to be accused of, here's the university president trying to get in. But the reality is I'm amazed that they know I'm a university president and still they see my blackmail through the eyes of his athletic ability versus his academic prowess. And he's a very, he's a straight A student. So we, we have some biases in the system that we have to undo. And, and I, I'm not saying this from a perspective of complaining. I actually sat on the board of that school for that very reason, to try to change uh, that very dynamic and to try to get people to see that some of these things are really, they're, they're unconscious biases in our system that, that doesn't allow for us to kind of look at these things the right way. That, that want, makes me want to ask a question, Dr. Frederick. Uh, um, you know, everybody in society now and many of our institutions and organizations are 
uh, have turned up the wick in terms of dealing with the race issue and uh, racial sensitivity, uh, unconscious bias, uh, uh, et cetera. What do you do with your students uh, to deal with it from, from your side? Yeah, great, great question. So first thing I do is I, I actually have been giving a talk for the past 12 years entitled Unconscious Bias. Uh, in academia and in medicine to show people the differences in outcomes and so on as a result. When I started at Howard as president, we had one female dean. So we had a diversity issue. Um, people would argue that our DNA is social justice, yet still on a campus with 70% uh, undergrads who are women, we had one female dean out of 13 and we had a problem. So the first thing I did was to make sure we were fixing and addressing our problem around that issue uh, before I went elsewhere. Women were also less likely to get promoted than men um, in the academic uh, ladder as well. And so I, I researched that, I got the data, I put it out to the community. Um, I started searching for deans by having gender balance committees. I insisted, I just launched a search yesterday for a graduate school dean, and I was speaking to the search committee this morning about the College of Arts and Sciences dean. I address every single search committee for decanal leadership. I insist that everybody on the committee do unconscious bias training. And you could imagine in an environment like Howard, everybody goes to that kicking and screaming. Uh, they all come back and say they learn way more than they ever knew. And now I'm happy to say we have nine of the 13 deans are women. I will not interview three finalists if one of them is not a woman. And the one thing you don't want to do on a college campus is to participate in the same search committee twice. So nobody is interested in that and I make it clear. So it's not that we can't find people and so on, we have to do it. So what do we then do for the rest of the campus? And what we try to do is to sensitize the campus around those issues. Uh, some of it has to happen organically in terms of making sure the students are having activities that expose a wider variety of thoughts and ideologies. And so we have different types of symposia and so on set up to do that. And we also have to make sure that the faculty are doing that. But I'll be very honest with you. One of my concerns today on our college campuses is that we, they are way too partisan and we have an issue because if these are the critical thinkers of our future, we have a responsibility to make sure that we could have discourse around the most difficult of issues on our college campuses. If it's not happening on our college campuses, it's not gonna happen at the barbershop that I'm on the way to after this, this meeting, right? It's, I'm, I'm not gonna get in there and hear somebody say, you know, what about, um, why, why doesn't, you know, the democratic candidate leave corporate tax where it is and come up with somebody, that's not the conversation that's gonna happen in the barbershop that I go to. And that's unfortunate, but if it does not happen on my campus, or on all our college campuses in America, we've got a problem. And I will submit to you that we have a problem right now. And, and, and collectively, we have to be programming to do that. But we as the adults have to set the tone. And that's part of what has not been happening. And so when we talk about what's happening in our country and what our students see, that's problematic. I sat with my 16-year-old and 14-year-old and looked at the debate, and it was a different kind of civic lesson uh, but it was a critical civic lesson, I'll tell you that. And for all of the you know, negative things that came out of the debate that I think all of us don't want to see, in a strange way, um, it was a lesson to them of what not to do. And sometimes we talk about it, but it's very different when you see an example of what you shouldn't do. And that is 
not having a conversation and having that discourse. But I have to tell you, if I bring somebody on this campus who's extremely conservative, it is very difficult to, to get people to understand, to have that conversation. So I had James Comey as uh, our Grennan and um, our Grennan Colbert King chair. And, you know, the students shouted him down because of um, Intel Pro, uh, which, which was nowhere close to him as the FBI director. And, you know, I just think that those things are unfortunate. You know, I, I don't think that we should be doing that on our college campuses. I mean, it agree with people, but, and I, and I will say it's not, the last thing I'll say about it is the students have an issue, but they don't necessarily bring the issue to us. We create an environment that fosters the issue. And, and the way we create it is that we do not force everybody in the environment to really say, we have to have the critical conversation. I'll, there's a Senator who I will leave unnamed um, on the democratic side who, who approached me, called me to his office one day and said he wanted to come on campus and uh, talk to the grad students to understand their cost and their interests. And I said, oh my gosh, that's a, that's a great conversation to have. I said, by the way, Senator, would you be interested in bringing one of your colleagues from the other side of the aisle with you who you worked on with something so that my students can see that. And he said, ah, not this time, Wayne, maybe next time. You know, and I thought to myself, this is crazy. Like <laughs> this, you, there must be one person in the chamber that you can be comfortable being seen with on a college campus, having a discussion about the course of graduate education. You know, somebody brought this up in the chat and that's the kind of conversation the students should be exposed to and hear both sides of the aisle. And unfortunately that's, well, you're in friendly territory here because we're desperately interested in getting the two sides together. Yeah. Uh, Bill, no, Kaufman, Bill Kaufman, do you have a question? Uh, thanks a lot, Dr. Frederick. Uh, clearly, Howard is, has been and is one of the more important institutions in the country right now. I was curious, uh, what are the majors of the undergraduates today? Yeah. What is their direction? Yeah, great question. Our number one major is biology. Um, our number two major since 2016, since the election of 2016, has been political science. And I would predict that uh, within the next two years, our number one major is going to be political science. Um, what has happened in the country has really spurred an interest um, in the political environment. Uh, and, and I think that that's going to continue. But interestingly enough, the, the pre-med in particular uh, that Howard has has always been strong. And the number of African-Americans interested in STEM has always been very strong. So biology has always been the number one major. Um, and then you go down, psychology used to be number two uh, before political science um, passed, uh, passed it. And then, you know, you go down the line with, with a series of, of things like business and we have a strong communications program and so on. Now, the other thing I, I would say to you, though, is I do not ask students about their major. That's the other thing about our higher ed um, environment that I think needs to change. I ask students about their mission because one of the things that's clear to me is that when we look at what we have students spend on general education, we don't quite do it with the purpose that was intended. And I think we have to become a little more flexible in what we offer students to do. And, and as we think of the formation of the young adult, I think we have to be a little more expansive in terms of how they get there. 
Um, I was very interested in, you know, uh, in business, uh, but I knew I wanted to become a physician because I had sickle cell. We did not have that flexibility uh, built into my undergrad program uh, to, to pursue that, to pursue my interest in business. And, and I think that that's misguided. Um, I met with the CEO of Goldman Sachs once and we kind of got into this conversation and he promptly informed me that he was a history major uh, to make my point. Um, I've, we've had about six students in consecutive years from our English department join Goldman Sachs uh, as an example and then go on to get their MBAs after. Never had an interest in business initially, but recognizing there were a, a plethora of jobs there kind of got in. So I, I say all of that to say, I think we have to start talking to students about their mission and giving them the opportunity to really go out and form a, a, a plan that gets there. And the way to do that is to have some more flexibility around what we see as the general education backbone to it. Very good. Uh, Alan Reich, what about you? Uh, Dr. Frederick, thank you for being with us today. Uh, um, a couple of months ago, we had one of your distinguished alumni uh, join us also, and I consider him one of the most extraordinary alum, uh, alumni from the university, specifically Lonnie Bunch, the secretary of the Smithsonian. Oh. Um, also, I must say that you do have an extraordinary chair of your board of trustees, and I know that full well because I sit with them on another board, and uh, Larry is truly an extraordinary individual. I want to go back to the question of critical dialogue because I, I could not agree with you more. Um, but I want to expand it in terms of what if can Howard do or you're doing with regard to, I'll, I'll say, a critical dialogue among students beyond uh, Howard University and perhaps with students from the other great universities that populate uh, the District of Columbia. Because this is a point in time when we talk about racial justice, when we talk about social justice, we need to have affirmative dialogue. Um, and, um, and how do we propagate that? How do we accomplish it? Yeah, you know, I, I, and we, we, I have to admit, this is one of those circumstances where, I, you know, I probably don't have a great answer. I'll tell you what we, we've tried to do. Uh, we have a debate team that's fairly active that goes to the other universities. We try to draw in a lot of activity around that. Um, we had an activity um, with, with around a football game uh, with Hampton where we uh, our tagline was, it's more than a game. And so the debate team participated as, as part of that. And, and again, the conversations I would say were robust around those issues. So, so we've tried to do that. Um, we, we try to get, we, we participate in the consortium um, of, of institutions in the city. I, I happen to be the chair this two-year period. And so we have programming where if, if you are part of the consortium as a student, you can actually take classes at any of the universities in the area. And so we've had a big push to do that. And this year actually is our largest increase of about 20-some percent more students enrolled from the other institutions who are taking classes at Howard, as an example. Um, the president at Gallaudet and I are working on a program for freshmen to expose them to uh, disadvantages and disparities in a different way, right? So, so Howard students, uh, because of, you know, structural racism in the country, experience uh, that type of disadvantage differently. But students who are, uh, who are deaf 
have a different circumstance in this country that isn't often understood. And so we had an idea to try to bring those two groups together, have the students at Gallaudet teach my freshmen how to sign as an example so that they get to empathize with a group of people in a different way that they otherwise wouldn't interact with, right? And, and again, that's not a brilliant idea for me. That actually came from an experience with my daughter. You know, when she was nine, she called me up while I was on a trip away and said, Dad, I want to uh, show you something. And she proceeded on FaceTime to show me all the letters of the alphabet in sign language and show me how to ask for stuff, et cetera. And I, I quickly became, you know, kind of confused because I said, well, where did you develop this interest? She was watching a movie and there was an actor who was deaf and was signing. And she immediately said, why, how does everyone not know how to sign? How do, how do people who are deaf, you know, move around our society if the rest of us aren't empathetic? And I thought to myself, geez, I mean, at nine, just think of what I would have had to do. I would have had to convince my mom to take me to a, a library. That would have been two to four weeks later, you know, and teach myself. And now they have so much information, but how do we allow them to see that difference and to apply it and, and to interact, you know? And sure enough, the next year in school, she was in a class with a young lady. She went to her house and both of her parents were deaf. And my daughter showed up and her parents were ecstatic to say the least because this, it was the first friend she had, you know, the daughter doesn't have a, uh, any issue with hearing, but it was the first friend that she's had in her entire school life who actually could sign, you know? And, and so it, it just, those are the types of things. I think we have to create organic opportunities uh, to do that, but we also have to think out of the box and be a little bit creative of the circumstances in which we try to get the message across by not thinking just about race or ethnicity, but think about the other things that people go through about vets. You know, um, we have vets on campus. We have an ROTC program. We think about things like PTSD and think about uh, our warriors who have been maimed in, in you know, war. We need to get them to speaking to our students. How do they navigate their lives after that, after making that kind of a sacrifice? So there's several types of things and, and programs that we are trying to launch at Harvard to get there. But, but I want to be very clear. Um, you bring up an issue that, I think it's germane and we certainly don't have the solutions, but we're seeking those solutions as well. Thank you. Well, I encourage you to continue to, to seek those because I think it's critical for our society. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Stan Ogilvy. Thank you, Howard. Dr. Frederick, my question was asked earlier related to alumni engagement, but I want to just say as we get toward the end of our hour, uh, how much we appreciate your being here with us and in particular, want to commend the remarks you made earlier about working hard to get diverse opinions expressed uh, without acrimony. Uh, that is so valuable in our society and in particular on our campuses. And if Howard is known for that, uh, it'll be a great, great contribution along with all the fine things your medical graduates are doing. The, the, the sort a short question is, you've noticed that uh, a number of us on this call are probably, for one reason or another, on the sidelines cheering for stem cell research. Mm -hmm. uh, we've all got a need of one sort or another for which that is going to be the magic bullet. I heard you earlier in the call talk about STEM education. I think I also heard you talking about stem cell research. And if the latter is true, if you meant to do that, please give us about uh, 30 seconds worth of encouragement for why something as great 
about to come out of Howard? Yeah, you know, and this one is deeply personal to me. I have sickle cell anemia. I'm homozygous uh, for for the disease. Um, and probably the most, you know, two of the most interesting opportunities in sickle cell today is CRISPR therapy and, and stem cell, uh, what we've done in stem cell research. So we have uh, partnerships through our sickle cell center with NIH um, around this issue. And I agree with you. I think there's so many things um, that it has the potential to impact um, in a way that we could not have imagined many years ago, everything from traumatic brain injury uh, to, I would say, even diabetes, et cetera. I'm also a type 1 diabetic who, who and I use an insulin pump, and I, I just think of the number of things, the number of areas that uh, that can impact. So it is an area that we're, we're heavily interested in and heavily involved in, and, and I do think um, has a lot of opportunities in terms of medicine. Very good. Thank you very much. I think we may have to let Dorothy Terrell have the last question. I'm sorry for anybody who did, we didn't get to. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Fredericks, thanks so much for being with us today and, and sharing. As a proud graduate of Florida A&M University, I've always had a great deal of respect for Howard. Um, my, my question is, as, as you mentioned, Howard has so many notable alumni. Um, and you just go down uh, a list and, and you'd still run out of, of time or whatever. And, but as a people, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if we all recognize enough the importance of our history and, and our papers. And I'm curious as to how active you or the university might be in soliciting, collecting, and, and storing papers? Yeah, great, great question. And, and a great question to close on. Uh, we have the Moreland Springer and Research Center. Uh, we recently have signed a deal with, um, uh, with one of the national uh, Smithsonian uh, libraries, the Library of Congress, to look at uh, the opportunity to do that. So the first, uh, the, the, our first foray into that is with Vernon Jordan's papers that are housed here. They are going to help us archive them and put them on display at the Library of Congress as well as at Howard. And the second foray into that is uh, Congressman Cummings' papers are going to come to us in that same partnership. So we we are actively um, involved and engaged in that. Is a, it is an area that we do need uh, more investment. Uh, the number of archivists who are interested in African-American luminaries in our country, you know, is, is, is small. And the people who've been at our mall and Springer and Research Center have been there for decades. And as we start uh, turning them over and succession planning is a critical part of that. But it, it is something that we're deeply involved in. And uh, Mr. Mark, since you said that was the last question, I do want to say that I, I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, I'm humbled by it. Uh, this is an August group, uh, to say the least, and, and I appreciate uh, what you're doing and what your intent um, is here. I do think that uh, university campuses like my own um, have a, a very, very strong, sacred and moral obligation to society uh, to be uh, social engineers, as the former dean of my law school once said, uh, or else we become social parasites. And so I, I, I do want to leave this group uh, with my full commitment and to assure you that Howard University certainly intends to be part of the solution 
uh, for social ills and that I am extremely optimistic as the father of a 16-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter. Um, the empathy I just described with my daughter um, is what I see in the young people who are coming here. Our country is in good stead, this, in spite of what um, we may be in the midst of right now. The young people that we have today are so concerned about one another and the humanity around them that we just need to be good stewards um, of them today and they will make a brighter tomorrow. And I certainly get to see that every single day. So I'm, I'm humbled to have this job. I'm also um, humbled to have the opportunity to have people like you looting for us in the right way as well. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for being here and I'll tell Bruce I saw you. And uh, Glenn, do you wanna say a few words? Um, so Dr. Frederick and to Mr. Mr. Morris, honestly, I think um, that we are the people who are humbled here. We're, we're obviously on, on the same page, but at the core, no labels. The, the muscle that we exercise every day is listening. And so listening to you has been a real pleasure and learning how you listen to all your constituents to help your university thrive has been a real pleasure. And um, just one piece of housekeeping because no labels is growing rapidly and, and you can um, hear what we're doing. So to everyone on the call, we've succeeded in raising about 7.8 million for all of our candidates. There's a last push in the next two weeks for eight candidates. So if you wanna get on the website, please do it. As everybody knows, this is a critical time and a critical election. So thank you very much, Dr. Frederick. Uh, thank you, Mr. Morse, for joining us and Howard for hosting and everyone for coming. And with that, we're adjourned. Thank you. Dr. Frederick discusses the unique challenges and objectives of Howard University in representing the Black community and educating students who might otherwise not have access to higher education. He goes on to explain how Howard is attempting to rethink various aspects of higher education, including how to deal with student debt and creating different requirements for graduation. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been the No Labels Podcast. <laughs>